Phoenix is it's gorgeous, it's picturesque, these rolling hills in the back with a sort of slight um, uh, urban landscape, you know, hovering just below it. It's, it's also a really beautiful place with wonderful people. That's Rashad Shabazz. I'm an associate professor of geography and African-American studies at Arizona State University. And he's telling me and my producer, Camilo Garzon, about a trip up South Mountain a trip that would change his perspective on the city where he lives. Uh, I once took a hike there with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and we stood up on one of the peaks, and it was green, except for you know this area that we're in here. We looked at Tempe, and you could just see the green. We looked north to North Phoenix and Scottsdale, particularly Scottsdale, and it's just lush green. You look west and it's less green because West Phoenix has more people of color and has more working class people in it. But when you look south, it's desolate. The trees that are there are young, five, 10 years old at tops. And there are just vast portions of the community that just don't have trees at all. And that, to me, was the moment that clicked for me. There's a moment in every story when you get to the heart of it. And this was it. We're going to do an episode on trees. The neighborhood in which you're born, raised in, and live in can shape your opportunity, your health, and ultimately your odds of a long and secure life. And if you're born into the frying pan of South Phoenix, the treeless area that Rashad viewed from South Mountain you will be exposed to all sorts of environmental challenges that have all sorts of consequences for health and longevity. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because we were a bit skeptical about Rashad's tree story. So he sent me and Camillo on a drive so that we could discover it for ourselves. So it's not that there are no trees here. It's that there are just enough trees to remind you that there really aren't any trees here. How many trees do you see? Well, I mean, there are. One scraggly one here, one scraggly one there. They don't do anything. They just like remind you that there's really no other trees. They feel very lonely. If you start at the corner of Central and Washington, you'll see, that's downtown, you'll see the light rail extension going on Central. It, it, so now it's going south on Central. All right, you'll see, if you stand there at the corner, you'll see it going south on Central. You, all right, you get on Central and you drive north. What do you see? It's mostly like industrial. There was a little bit of construction just before we went into Central just because of what will be the light rail. Yeah, Central is, uh, as you mentioned, lots of construction. When you hit Bethany Home Road, it's just like the trees just cover the street. So we're supposed to follow this all the way up to Bethany Home. So, I mean, it's quite, I mean, it is quite different now. Like the whole neighborhood. Yeah, that's like, yeah, those are, that was a tree-lined street there. And now there's this, even, even Central is beginning to become yeah. tree-lined, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm seeing it. I see it, too. And the farther north you go on Central, 
you'll see it. You'll, you'll be downtown. You know, not it's like buildings, of course, right? But you come out of downtown on McDowell, okay? You come out of downtown on McDowell. Still urban. You hit Indian school, more trees. I wonder if that building over there is the old Indian school. That it is. Yeah. Yeah. So he was right. He was right. Oh, like, go near now, like, now. You hit Camelback, the trees explode. You go past Camelback to Bethany Home Road. It's just trees proliferate. You keep going, and the streets are covered. Like, it's just... Oh, my God. Holy shit. This is... Yeah, now really I see are. it. Yeah, yeah. This really is like all of a sudden you've left the desert. You're not, I mean, uh, I feel like I've never seen a tree before. I'm like, I wow, trees. Yeah, I have not seen plants in my life. Wow. Like it, it truly is as green as we've seen Phoenix. It's like a it's like a New England town where the streets are covered. It's just like it's like everything is different. Yeah, everything. It's the trees, the houses. There's grass. That's that's the way Phoenix is. So what happens when you don't get to live in that transported New England town, and instead end up south of Washington, where cement replaces trees, where care is replaced by deliberate indifference? What happens when you literally grow up on the wrong side of the tracks? From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, a lifetime of inequality. I'm Ken Stern. Support for this podcast comes from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. And from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Learn more at ncoa.org. Camillo and I arrived in Phoenix in the middle of the hottest summer on record. Have a good afternoon. Yeah, I agree with you. It's so well yeah. with heat. Yeah, and then you walk out in the sun. It really does. My face is kind of burning a little bit. Do you feel that? Yeah, it's the face, you know, I also, I have glasses, I feel it in my eyes. And it's only 109 right now, so. <laughs> it's going to be hotter tomorrow, so that would be It's be hotter good. tomorrow. Right. Even in Phoenix, 109 isn't quite a cold snap, but certainly a step down from the hottest days. Temperatures above 110 degrees Fahrenheit might not be the ideal conditions for a hike. The searing heat in the desert southwest, where Phoenix continues its record streak of days reaching 110 or above, is expected to persist well into next week. Good morning, Dana. Temperatures are expected to hit 116 degrees here today. It is hot, hot, hot. The sun is not even up, and already it is 91 degrees. It's nearby Phoenix's longest street. It may be a record now, but one that will surely be broken soon, as the number of days above 110 degrees Fahrenheit are projected to more than double by 2060 a consequence of climate change. But in those days, it doesn't matter. That's Nuvia Enriquez. Communications director for Chispa Arizona. Chispa Arizona is an environmental justice organization based in South Phoenix. Nuvia described to us what this summer's temperature felt like in Phoenix. 
like this summer has just been the only the, the way that I have been able to like describe it to myself is that it just has it has felt so loud like the heat for some reason just feels unbearably loud I, I, I don't know why that is what um, comes to mind but we had what 31 days so basically all of July was 110 degrees and above so it was it was intense That's the sound of concrete cracking in South Phoenix, and it's loud indeed. At one end, heat is disruptive, but on the other hand, it is a threat to life, especially the young, the old, and those that lack resources. Heat can be a matter of life and death in places like Phoenix, and you can't avoid talking about it in Phoenix, but some people can't get enough on the topic. So heat is definitely my jam. That's Melissa Guardaro. She's an assistant research professor of sustainability at Arizona State University. He may be our jam now, but she had a rude awakening when she first came to Phoenix. Um, I decided that I was going to go and pursue a PhD, and I left New York, the New York area to go to Tempe, Arizona in August, where you are right now. And uh, I'm trying to be my best sustainability self because I'm at the School of Sustainability and my bicycle had not yet arrived. I walked the three treeless blocks to the free circulator bus stood on a bus stop, which coincidentally was at the high school. And it was just this little stake in the ground. By the time I got to work, I said to my boss, you people are all crazy, man. You've incentivized people to rip out the landscaping. You want people to take public transit. You know, you almost killed me on the way here. What what are you doing? And that's when uh, uh, Dr. Chuck Redman, who is my advisor and the founder of the School of Sustainability said, well, I guess you found what you were gonna work on. Melissa has been researching for years how is it that we adapt to heat, but also how is it that heat is distributed across an urban environment? There are certainly pockets, and those pockets are a result of the urban heat island. The urban heat island effect, the result of how we have built our cities. The urban heat island is something you feel when you're in a downtown area and you come out from a movie at 11 o'clock at night and you say, oh my gosh, it's still so hot here. And it has to do with the materials in a building that are just retaining that heat all day long. So depending upon the amount of those materials, that's how much hotter it is over into the night. And this is why this heat dome has been such a problem is that the low temperatures have been very high. I think a lot of people like to focus on the high temperatures. Oh, it's 110, 115 degrees. But for human health, the low temperatures are very dangerous. And that's the effect of the urban heat island where the overnight temperatures remain high. They just don't cool off. So you have an area that doesn't have access to pools or parks or uh, cool corridors to to walk around. And, uh, you know, they're living where industry has been allowed to be very close to residential areas. And it's just hot, hot, hot all the time. And that's the story in South Phoenix. It stays hotter all the time, sometimes as much as 7 to 10 degrees hotter than other parts of the metropolitan area. What South Phoenix lacks in trees, it makes up for in concrete and pollutants. Environmentally, South Phoenix is one of the the most toxic areas in the the Phoenix metropolitan area Um, because of its topography and its geography. Various forms of pollutants get trapped in and around that area. And because of the decades 
of that place being effectively zoned for commercial development and for industrialization, in addition to the airport and now the 202 highway that blocks it off. Uh, it, it has confronted pollutants in ways that no other community in the Phoenix metropolitan area has. It all adds up to have significant long-term effects on people's health. The short answer here is that when you are exposed to heat and you have a heat exhaustion, certainly if you have heat stroke, the next time it will happen faster. So over time, that if you keep on having these emergencies, you succumb much quicker along the way. It isn't that you get better. It's that you are that much more vulnerable to that. So if you get heat stroke next time, you'll be even more vulnerable to get it. And if you're older, there's an impact on how much of that you can resist. But what has happened during the, this 30 days of over 110 preliminary results show that these are elderly people, 65 plus, who succumb outside their home and they're housed. But just going to the grocery store and back, uh, just getting into your superheated car or waiting for your bus, that, those are really dangerous conditions, particularly if you have these other underlying um, conditions like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But it's not just the elderly. It's also those in poverty. Yeah. Um, so something that we hear a lot from people from Tafsini is that they need to survive. That's Ms. Savi Perea. He's a community organizer with Chispa, Arizona. And one of the things, of course, that is happening in South Phoenix is that a cheap land. So, so apartments with no regulation, like the, the, the quality of the apartments are very bad, you know. And uh, even the housing, right? Like those are like cheap houses because you live next to, next to factories. So what, what, we, what we see a lot of people complaining in South Phoenix is the lack of parks the lack of walkability streets, the lack of public transportation, right? And the lack of uh, cool corridors, the lack of tree chain areas. Poverty forces hard choices on people to choose between the necessities of life, food, shelter, and in places like Phoenix, even air conditioning. You know, and, and many of the reasons is because, because in order to keep cool your house, it is very expensive. You know, so many families, they need to make the decision when they are going to turn it on the AC. So many, they decide that they are going to turn it on when the kids are back from school. You know, so, so during the day, many of these elders, they don't have like a cool place, you know. So those, those I think that is one of the, of the things that we see a lot. We visited with Juana Silva, a resident of South Phoenix, in her home. And she told us about some of those hard choices she has faced. Uh, otra de las cosas es que las familias de bajos recursos, pues, no pueden pagar tantos, tan altas tarifas de electricidad. Por ejemplo, mi esposo ahorita me dijo, hay que pagar la luz. One of the situations that happen is that families that don't have a lot of resources cannot pay the high electricity bills that come around summer. Even Juan and her husband had just gotten a bill for 400 bucks. As she says, some families have to decide between paying the bills or getting food. It's a terrible place to have to choose between food and electricity in the dead of a Phoenix summer. And if you don't have air conditioning, it is hard to find respite, as Masavi has told us. You should say it like 110 degrees, and then what happens if, if the electricity, something happens, shut down? Where, where people go? Okay, so you will say, okay, I go to the, to the mall. 
but there are no malls in South Phoenix. Okay, I go to the library and there are very few libraries. Okay, I go to the park, but there are parks without trees. It's a toxic brew in South Phoenix of heat, air pollution, noise, and light pollution. And it has its effect. And then what we learned, it was that the, the asthma rates were super bad. Like um, in across the country, I think 15, 20% of the kids have asthma. But black and brown kids, that goes, the number goes all the way to 40%. But in parts of South Phoenix in Maryville, that number goes to 80%. In some schools, that goes to 90%. Um, so I'm Dane Saldana, and um, I'm a student at ASU. I'm a senior. Dane has a direct family experience with asthma. My cousin grew up with asthma, and so for him, it was definitely a bigger issue growing up of like being able to go outside on certain days because of how certain days are more polluted than others. Um, but, you know, it, it's obvious now that, that we're all affected by air pollution, but just knowing that um, there was times that he wasn't even allowed to go outside. Asthma is a significant and growing cause of morbidity in low-income underrepresented communities nationwide. And Phoenix overall ranks among the worst cities in the country for asthma-related illness and death. The result of heavy urban pollution and the fact that heat can exacerbate the impact of asthma. But the problem is particularly acute in South Phoenix. Two major highways, Sky Harbor Airport, and broad industrial pollution has resulted in asthma rates for children that are twice the national average. This has contributed to a life expectancy of South Phoenix of only 71, well below the national average and among the lowest in the state. In South Phoenix, as Dana and Masave told us, there's no escape, especially for kids. No supercooled libraries or movie theaters or shopping malls and no shaded parks, which brings us back to the topography of trees. Rashad Shabazz explains. And trees in Arizona are a signifier of wealth. The bigger the tree, the older the tree, the wealthier and the wider the community. But why did this all happen? Why is North Phoenix so comparatively lush and South Phoenix so barren? Did Mother Nature just bestow gifts on one area and not the other? It turns out, as Rashad Shabazz tells us, that the arboreal divide of Phoenix was part of a larger segregation, something that was planned from the very earliest days of the city. The Phoenix metropolitan area was created by indigenous people hundreds of years ago. So there was a vibrant, active, engaged indigenous community that was here uh, that were ultimately displaced by white settlers. And those white settlers really began to show up right in the years after the, the Civil War. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, um, because of the Reconstruction period and the, and the North sort of, you know, occupying the South uh, or at least trying to reconstruct the South and allow for the South to re-enter into the Union, uh, Confederate, white Confederate soldiers left the South. And um, Phoenix was one of the places that some of those soldiers came to. So there's this kind of neo-Confederacy to Phoenix's history. One big factor drew the white settlers to the area, the Salt River. The river was a really important um, 
pull factor, as we geographers call it. It was, it was sort of pulling them here uh, because it's a, it's a major water source in the middle of one of the largest deserts in North America. Uh, the other one is that the river made it possible to augment the landscape for certain kinds of agricultural production that some of these white Southerners were familiar with in places like Georgia or Texas or Alabama or, or Mississippi, um, and that's cotton. To work the new cotton farms, the settlers needed a labor force. That's right, but it was primarily agricultural labor force. Black people came here and got in the, into the cotton industry, a, a terrible irony. Um, and yet there was a skill set and an understanding what that agricultural production that, that Black Americans could find a foothold in and, and, and be able to get jobs in. So really some of the first black settlements we see here around uh, 1915, 1917, 1918, uh, and many of them were forced to settle in what is now known as South Phoenix. Whites brought with them not only their knowledge of Southern agriculture, but their affinity for segregation policies. And for decades, they had the force of law behind them. Yes, environmental redlining grew out of the housing network that started in the years right before the Second World War. And the way it worked is that the federal government gave guidelines to banks on how they should lend and where they should lend. And the federal government created an agency called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. And they gave instructions on how and where to lend. The places that were given the designation green, green meant a go to give loans. Those, those locations were always uh, middle class and white. The areas that were blue were largely middle class, but they were still all white. Yellow meant transition. That meant there were in immigrant populations, maybe working class and some poor people, as well as white people, and that the banks should not give loans in those areas. Red were places that were um, exclusively black. That was the urban DNA of Phoenix. Government investors pour resources into North Phoenix. South Phoenix was uh, underdeveloped. So north of Washington Avenue, uh, white settlers had developed that area. Roads, some agricultural production, plumbing, electricity, um, other forms of transportation. It was, it was much more developed. But South Phoenix looked rather different. South of Washington Avenue was relatively agricultural. It was literally on the other side of the train tracks that had been uh, established in the early part of the 19th century. South of Washington were the stockyards, the warehouses and railroads, and people of color. The reason why it changes is that before 1919, there's no restrictive, racially restrictive covenants in Arizona. The first one comes around 1919. And what those racially restrictive covenants did is they barred Black, Mexican, Indigenous, Asian American people from renting or purchasing homes north of Washington Avenue. Racially restrictive covenants were held unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1948, 
but by then the social red line of Phoenix was too strong to brush aside by judicial fiat. And industrial investments south of Washington continued at grand scale. In the 1950s, Sky Harbor Airport in South Phoenix was dramatically expanded, paving the way for it to transform from a small regional airport to what is now the 22nd largest in the world. And with that expansion came more warehouses, more noise, more pollution, more concrete, and fewer trees. I think one of the things we should recognize here that where we are here now in South Phoenix, it's not just the heat, we're right next to the airport. There's no trees, there's no cover. We're right next to the airport, so there's sounds. Uh, it's a heavily industrialized area, so probably a lot of, a lot of pollution of all sorts. It's a tough, tough place to live. Yeah, have you seen like any of the cacti or the saguaros yet? Because I feel like when I was on the airport, just getting out, yeah. going to meet you, I saw a saguaro that had just dropped and kind of like split open, I think because of the heat. Wow. Yeah, yeah. When, when it's too hot for the cactus, it's, uh, it's too hot for people. <laughs> so what could be done to mitigate the heat and the environmental damage in South Phoenix? Phoenix has always been hot, but now in an era of climate change, the summer of 2023 has set off alarm bells about the health risks of heat. Already in 2023, Maricopa County, the county that includes Phoenix, has recorded 295 heat-related deaths, with another 300 deaths under active investigation. Heat is serious business in Phoenix. The city appointed the first chief heat officer in the U.S., and Melissa Guardaro tells us about some of the efforts underway. Dealing with the three underserved neighborhoods, we are also dealing with a robust cooling center network. And uh, unlike a lot of other areas where a cooling center is stood up based upon a National Weather Service heat warning, our cooling centers are open continuously from May through September. And it wasn't just having cooling centers where you would just sit in a cooler room, but also providing all sorts of wraparound services and um, just trying to get help for people that uh, might not know how to get to resources. And what about the youth? What about those children that go to school in South Phoenix? or parents with babies. So of course, if you're a baby or a child, you do not have the thermal regulation with which to deal with heat. So you can imagine having a baby in a stroller and not being aware of that. I mean, you have to make sure that you keep your kid hydrated and safe during the, these extreme temperatures. And then when we get into school children, we have a program called Heat Ready Schools that really tries to identify someone within the school system, whether it's a nurse, a principal, administrator, a teacher, to really understand and look out for heat issues, heat health issues along the way. And there are things that schools can do to cool down their schools, to make them heat safe along the way. And then there are the trees. It's hard to imagine South Phoenix, a community of concrete, blossoming like Bethany Home Road, although there are efforts underway to add to the few forlorn trees we saw when we were there. It's a slow process, but an important one. We need to go back to, to, to our origins, right? We need to have native trees. You know, uh, on this uh, market, the, of, the, of the, this housing market, they have been planting a lot of trees that are not native. And many of those trees don't last, you know, or, or don't provide what, what it needs, or, or, they take, or, or they take a lot, a lot of more water. You know, so, we, so, so our Clean and Green campaign, we, we want to have, we want to increase the shade tree canopy for, uh, to, to 20%. Small investments have been made in tree cover for South Phoenix, 
but not nearly enough to make up for 200 years of environmental segregation. Ultimately, it's the development and gentrification of South Phoenix that may inspire change in the built environment, but it's not clear who will be left to benefit from those new investments. Camillo and I saw miles of new track for the light rail that is being built in the South Phoenix and higher end development in its wake. And while it provides solutions in terms of mobility and connection around the Phoenix area, it is, as Rashad told us. Now this is a mixed bag and I'm on two sides of it. As a, as a geographer, um, I very much believe in public transportation. I think public transportation is essential for any functioning urban core. It moves people around uh, with, without the power um, of fossil fuels. It fosters a kind of community. It enables people to walk. It, it forces for building and development to be uh, more dense, which saves on resources like water and electricity. But it comes with a price tag. Ultimately, the light rail extension happened and the light rail is coming into South Phoenix. And as people like myself predicted, all along the core, developers are buying up those homes at an incredibly cheap rate to people who have never seen any real money in their lives. And they're moving them out and they're building condos that none of the people in that community can afford. You may wonder what's the loss if South Phoenix is bulldozed for a brighter, greener future. Others have wondered as much. You know, uh, years ago, when Bill Clinton was a pre the president, he came to South Phoenix one time. And he said, <laughs> he said, uh, the United States has been very blessed, but South Phoenix ha has not been. And I was like, man, that's hard. That's, a, that's hard. That's cold hard, right? But the people of South Phoenix have forged community despite the legacy of environmental segregation. That is why people in, this, in South Phoenix to this day, despite it effectively being a kind of Superfund site or being adjacent to a Superfund site, despite being kept out of the market, out of the housing market for generations, despite the poverty, despite the heat island effect that affects that location um, in, in ways that are different from the rest of the city, that's why people still want to be there because imbued in that geography are community, history, and values that can't be replicated anywhere else in the city. Masave recognized these community values for the first time he arrived in South Phoenix. Uh, so when I came to, to Phoenix and then I had a lot of family in South Phoenix, I remember that we used to go there and I was, uh, I was like, oh, wow, this is a community of a black community, you know, and uh, but, but it was, a, I felt them super welcoming, you know, and uh, it was this combination of Mexicans and black pe people in, in, in in South Phoenix, I remember that uh, the kids, right, when we used to walk the street, they used to tell us, hey, Mexicans. <laughs> and um, because probably many of those kids, they, they haven't seen Mexicans, you know. So, but it, it, uh, so I felt very welcoming and I felt that I was home. So how to invest and improve South Phoenix without undermining the community, without displacing the residents who lived there and made their home for a lifetime? For Masave, that means returning to our roots. Sabes que cuando empecé a trabajar en la justicia ambiental, me, también me conecté más con mis, con mis raíces indígenas. 
Y, y he tenido la fortuna de, de, de trabajar con varias comunidades en donde de, de lo más sagrado del cactus es, es cuando, cuando pepenan o cuando piscan la, la pitaya. La, la, la. Entonces, por ejemplo, en México, ¿verdad? el nopal. You know, when I started to work in environmental justice, I also got acquainted with my indigenous roots and I've been able to work with various communities. And for them, the fruits of the cacti, like the saguaro or nopal, are the most sacred. For example, in Mexico, it's easy to get those fruits, those pitayas. But some indigenous communities in the U.S., for example, don't eat cacti. So I understood that for these communities, cacti, like the saguaro and the nopal, they are a person. They are our siblings. So is the coyote. So are other trees. And so what really surprised me is that indigenous communities, while they have been repressed for so long, they still live in very good coordination with Mother Earth. That seems great to me. It's beautiful to me. And that seems beautiful to us as well, to restore the balance with Mother Earth and bring environmental harmony back to South Phoenix. All it will take is a concerted effort and a whole lot of trees. The producers of Sedgetree Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camilo Garzon. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Jungle and Ramtin Arablui. And the cover of Glenn Fry's The Heat Is On is by the band Walkman. Support for this podcast comes from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Find out more at ncoa.org. And from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.